This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm Christy Shriver, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Live podcast. This is our second episode in our four-part series discussing the world of Kate Chopin. Last week, we um, introduced our author and what is generally really considered her masterpiece, and that is the novella, The Awakening. And today, we will continue discussing this book as we meet Edna and we mosey around the uh, Creole world of Victorian Louisiana on the vacation island of Grand Isle. That sounds lovely. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this book, uh, kind of like Camus' The Stranger, and uh, that it's incredibly complicated, but deceptively simple looking. For one thing, it's short. It has been misunderstood, like we talked last week, since the minute it was published. And it's still misunderstood. Critics have claimed that it's a champion of the women's movement, a challenge to the patriarchy, an expose on depression, a discussion of narcissism, an exploration of female sexuality. Well, certainly it can be looked at through each of these lenses. You can pick which one sounds the most fun to you. Uh, and there's lots that can be said for all of those things. Yet Chopin cryptically told one critic in response to her book uh, nothing about the ideological lines. This is how she chose to frame her story. And I want to quote her. She said this. I never dreamed of Edna making such a mess of things and working out her own damnation as she did. <laughs> what does that even mean? I know. Well, it's a consciously and deliberately messy book. It's not best read as an ideological book of any kind, no matter if your prejudices, prejudices lie for or against any of the apparent causes I cited out there for a minute. It certainly is easier if you read it and you're looking at it trying to make a political statement. And when I was first introduced to the book, that is exactly how I was taught to understood it. But since those early days, I have wisely decided to reject easy <laughs> interpretations of great literature in general, primarily because that makes something great immediately uninteresting. And this book is definitely not uninteresting. Well, and you know, anytime a book hits on that magic button of tuning into the human psyche, you got to look at it deeper. And this is one of those books. And, uh, you know, if we're not supposed to read it about it being about politics or the patriarchy or oppression or, or that sort of thing, how should we understand it? Hence the million-dollar question. Uh -huh. <laughs> she just made a mess of things. What is so compelling about Edna Pontier, besides trying to say her name three times fast? Uh -huh. And she's been compelling, maddening for the last 120 years. Well, you know, I don't find her necessarily a, a likable person. Are we supposed to? 
I mean, at first I wondered if it was designed so that, you know, men are supposed to not like her or maybe not like themselves by looking at what's happened to her. Uh, But do women generally find her likable? I mean, I also don't see how to avoid seeing gender as an important component of the book. Oh, I totally agree with that. You can't help but see gender. And you're supposed to see gender. It's about a woman. It's about being a woman. But let me ask you this. Is there anything more complicated than a woman? <laughs> uh, you know what? I am not going to walk into that minefield. You think I honestly that you can honestly bait me to answer that? Well, wise man. Uh, in all seriousness, let me say it this way. It's about being human, but from a woman's perspective. And that can't be reduced to any single series or set of definable variables. And that's what's messy about life in general. This is about a woman in the Victorian era at the turn of the century. Those are the particulars of the challenges that women faced at that particular political moment in U.S. history and world history. The woman question, as they referred to it back in those days. But that is just the starting point, the setting, so to speak. There are more interesting parts of Edna and her awakening than just resolving the contextual, economic, sexual, or matrimonial roles of the society she was living in. Beyond that, let's just look at that term, the awakening. It's kind of a strange term to use in a book where the protagonist spends an unusually large amount of time asleep. Irony. (laughs) Well, I'm not sure I've ever seen a protagonist sleep as much as Edna does, except maybe... I don't know, Sleeping Beauty. I guess there was Rip Van Winkle. (laughs) Mm. And yet the title begs a question. What is an awakening? Or at least what is the awakening as Edna is to experience it? This first part of the book that we're going to talk about today is chapters 1 through 16. And I'm going to argue that that's the awakening. For her, it's kind of this gradual experience. And it happens to her over a summer. Chopin first defines it in chapter 6. It's described as coming into one's own humanity to recognize one's relations as an individual to the world within and about. Hmm. You know, um, that's a great definition of what it means to grow up, (laughs) really. I mean, to to find one's um, agency in the world, you know. Uh, Chopin really insightfully connects someone's internal awakening with their sexual awakening. And this awareness of how you are a sexual being as such interact with other beings as sexual beings, both of the same sex as well as the opposite sex. I mean, Chopin illustrates this many ways. And I would go so far as to say it seems to use sexual agency as an expression of agency of a general kind. Well, I think that might be true, but what does that mean? I mean, how should we define agency? What is human agency? You know, that's a word I hear all the time uh, in pop culture, but what is it that we're talking about? Now, I know that that's asking you to respond in a long <laughs> thing, so you're going to have to make it just a few words. Well, first of all, I love the idea of agency. It's a great psychological concept, you know, and, and in general. Right, I almost didn't ask. I uh, know. <laughs> uh, you know, but in general, it, it refers to our, our capability as humans really to influence our own functioning. Um, it's our ability to direct the course of events really through our own actions. And, you know, uh, if you want to say it another way, it's, it's our ability to determine and really make meaning through some purposeful and reflective creative action. You know, I'm going to geek out a minute here. Um, <laughs> a psychologist by the name of uh, Albert Bandura out of Stanford University. If you don't know Albert Bandura, you've been living under a rock. Anyway, he's a leading figure in this field. Uh, so if you're interested, just Google him and you can read uh, as much as you want. Uh, I highly recommend look at the Bobo doll experiment. But <laughs> You're getting excited. <laughs> okay. But basically, according to Bandura, we exercise agency in four ways. We're self-organizing. We're proactive. We're self-regulating. We're self-reflecting. Uh, we're not simply... Uh, onlookers for on our own behavior we are really contributors to our life circumstances not just products of them and that's a quote okay well we like to think and we do think the younger that we are that agency really just means freedom and in many ways i guess it does but what does freedom mean does it mean that i get to do whatever i want sort of 
but we're interacting in a world full of forces, both inside ourselves, but also outside ourselves. And understanding that seems to be something Chopin is wanting to explore, but in a female, in a feminine context. Because female forces, some of them are the same as male forces, but not always necessarily so. Well, um, I will tell you what Bandura would say. What would Bandura say? (laughs) You know, he would say that the problem is that most human pursuits uh, have to involve other people. So there is no absolute agency. I mean, you know, let me use Bandura's words here. And he says, um, individuals have to accommodate their self-interest if they are to achieve unity of effort within diversity. And collective endeavors require commitment to a shared intention and coordination of interdependent plans of action to realize it. That's hard to understand. Okay. Well, in other words, you have to get along in the world you live in. (laughs) You have to find a way to be agreeable. Getting along with others. That's another important idea to think about here. The Awakening wasn't really the original title of the book, and I think that's informative. The original title was A Solitary Soul. That makes you think of the story in an entirely different way. Is this a story about waking up or being alone? Obviously, I'm going to suggest both. Uh, If there's something that we can see immediately in the characterization of Edna right at the beginning is that she's a solitary woman. She is very much alone, and she's been alone all of her life, not physically alone, but emotionally. Well, that was really insightful when you told me about that, when you pointed that out, because for me, that, that title tells me it would lead me to believe that this book is about attachment and it's about intimacy. Um, you know, but I may be jumping the gun there, but, uh, we didn't get very far into the story last episode and we basically only got through the first chapter. Uh, so let's kind of start there. Um, we found ourselves on a vacation resort Island, the grand Isle, which is 50 miles from new Orleans. Uh, Emily Toth, Chopin's biographer, uh, described it as kind of a tropical paradise of sorts. And she had this to say about it. So this is a real place. It's a real place. Uh, For young mothers like Kate Chopin, it was a wholesome place to spend what otherwise was a dangerous season in the South. Let me translate that. There's no air conditioning down here (laughs) at that time. But it's not just the heat. Right. Unlike New Orleans, the Grand Isle didn't have open canals or cisterns. There weren't swarms of disease-infested mosquitoes that threatened the children and the adults. And, you know, no one had to lock their doors. Uh, the island was a tropical paradise. It had palm trees and vines and orange and lemon trees and acres of yellow chamomile. I mean, there were no actual streets. Only grassy green and sandy paths. I mean, it was seductive to the imagination, too, you know, with uh, the tales of shipwrecks and pirate gold from Barataria Bay, the old haunt. Oh, yes, they learned Jean about Lafitte. that. Yes. <laughs> well, uh, that makes sense. Well, of course that makes sense. Memphis is also sweltering hot in the summer. And for years, summer months in the South were deadly. Mosquitoes came in with them, they brought deadly diseases, yellow fever terrorized Memphis more than once. Uh, So if you could afford to get away from the city in the summer, you did. And many people did exactly what we see that Pontier is doing here. Um, Edna and the kids would stay at Grand Isle. Leonce would go into the city during the week, and he would come out to spend the weekends with the family. And, you know, last week we didn't actually meet Edna. You know, we met her husband, who was annoyed by the cackling birds that are making so much noise he can't read his newspaper. You know, there's a parrot and a mockingbird, and we talked about how birds are important symbols in this book. Yes, birds, and then, of course, wings. I didn't talk about wings, but, you know, birds have them. We'll get to it. (laughs) We have a parrot. We have a mockingbird. Later on, we're going to have a pigeon house. We're also going to have a woman with angel wings and another woman who tells Edna she needs strong wings. But, But before we get to the lady friends with the wings... Let's meet Edna Pontier. Soon after Mr. Pontier leaves the house, like we read last week, Mrs. Pontier and her summer companion, Robert Lebrun, come strolling along. It's not one of the world's most normal love triangles. (laughs) (laughs) Let's watch how these three interact. Do you want to read that interaction for us? I will. You are burnt beyond recognition, he added, looking at his wife as one looks at a valuable piece of personal property which has suffered some damage. She held up her hands, strong, shapely hands, and surveyed them critically, 
drawing up her lawn sleeves above the wrist. Looking at them reminded her of her rings, which she had given to her husband before leaving for the beach. She silently reached out to him, and he, understanding, took the rings from his vest pocket and dropped them into her open palm. She slipped them upon her fingers. Then, clasping her knees, she looked across at Robert and began to laugh. The rings sparkled upon her fingers. He sent back an answering smile. Well, you know, there's nothing quite so startling as introducing a book's protagonist as an object. <laughs> a burnt one. On page one, uh, Mr. Pontier literally looks at his wife as a piece of property, according to our narrator. And um, he seems to care less about the man that she's spending all of her time with. Yes, but there's more to see here. I mean, she's clearly a beautiful woman. She's a prize for her husband. But what does she get in exchange for that? Rings. And they sparkle. She also gets days at the beach, free of responsibility. In fact, we're going to see that Edna is the only character in this book who does not work, really, not really, at all. These two have made a deal. And what we clearly see as we watch the relationship develop is that love was never part of the Pontier Agreement, at least not the way we would like to understand love as it works in a working, ideal marriage. I mean, Edna married Leonce because he loved her and flattered her. But Chopin is careful to make us aware that she never loved Leonce in return or even deceived herself into thinking she did. She was, quote, running away from prayers, from the Presbyterian service. She was running away from her father. Uh, it made the family mad that she was marrying a Catholic. Although we have to jump ahead to chapter 7 to see all that. But let's just read the love story of these two, quote, unquote, not lovebirds. <laughs> I'm going to try to borrow from Chopin's bird motif there. Okay. <laughs> okay, let me read it. Her marriage to Léonce Pontier was purely an accident. In this respect, resembling many other marriages which masquerade as the decrees of fate, it was in the midst of her secret great passion that she met him. He fell in love, as men are in the habit of doing, and pressed his suit with an earnestness and an ardor which left nothing to be desired. He pleased her. His absolute devotion flattered her. She fancied there was a sympathy of thought and taste between them in which fancy she was mistaken. Add to this the violent opposition of her father and her sister Margaret to her marriage with a Catholic, and we need seek no further for the motives which led her to accept Monsieur Pontier for her husband. The acme of bliss, which would have been a marriage with the tragedian, was not for her in this world. As the devoted wife of a man who worshipped her, she felt she would take her place with a certain dignity in the world of reality, closing the portals forever behind her upon the realm of romance and dreams. But it was not long before the tragedian, the tragedian was the guy she had a crush on, by the way, had gone to join the cavalry officer and the engaged young man and a few others, and Edna found herself face to face with the realities. She grew fond of her husband, realizing with some unaccountable satisfaction that no trace of passion or excessive or fictitious warmth colored her affection, thereby threatening its disillusion. I think that's quite possibly the least romantic story <laughs> I've ever read. In fact, she seems almost proud that she doesn't love Leonce. But honestly, I think we can say that story is common enough. I mean, how many guys and girls marry whoever they're dating in their youth just because it seems like it's the time to do something like that? And it happens to be the person they met at that time. You know, as Chopin would call it, an accident masquerading as a decree of fate. I, mean, I like that expression. I think it's genius. How many others, you know, make a deal of convenience? You know, basically a financial transaction of sorts. And never mind the detail that she threw on there at the end, that if she doesn't have any affection for it, there's no threat of losing the affection. So mm -hmm. it's one of these, these kind of deals. Uh, you know, my favorite Marilyn Monroe movie. I have to admit, is diamonds are a girl's best friend. And it's kind of a funny take on this idea. You know, we don't have to have a love exchange. We'll just do something else. Although for Marilyn, it worked out much better than it has, you know, for Edna. Chopin's portrayal is realistic. 
people marry, and then sooner or later, one or both partners start doing things that resemble Chopin's description of the Pontelier marriage. In Victorian days, you know, it was generally the woman, I guess. I really don't know that. But today, I've seen situations where it could be either partner, that they're experiencing some of the exact same emotions, uh, and they're doing some of the exact same things that we see Edna doing here in Chapter 3. It's just this sad isolation. You know, Edna's being discarded for one thing or another. Edna and Leons have two small children, but Edna finds herself crying in the middle of the night and it's gut-wrenching. I mean, this relationship feels cruel and it's not cruel just because Leonce wakes her up in the middle of the night wanting to talk. The scene as it unfolds is an expression of a total lack of understanding between these two. What is most cruel here is the total lack of intimacy between these two. And, you know, money doesn't make it all better even though they seem to think it does. And um, Leonce gives Edna a bunch of money the next day, knowing that it makes her happy. And uh, later on, after he goes back to New Orleans, uh, Edna receives a care package from her husband, and she even admits to her friends that she really knows of no better husband than Leonce Pontier. And of course, all that comes across as very ironic to the reader because Chopin has already taken us behind the veil of what looks like from the outside a perfectly ideal marriage. But we know that there's a lonely woman crying when nobody's watching. Well, you know, I also found it interesting that in the second chapter of the book, uh, before we even read the sad incident of uh, Edna crying through the night, we are told that her mother has been dead. I mean, just a very psychological detail that's important to introduce really into this text. Yep, she's a solitary soul, and she has been. There's a couple more important details that I think we need to pay attention to here early in the text. Uh, We should talk about this guy, Robert Lebrun. Robert spends all day, every day with Edna at Grand Isle, but Leonce is not jealous of him at all. In fact, we're told Creole husbands are never jealous. The gangrene passion is one which has become is dwarfed by disuse. I'm really not sure I understand that expression, but it's really cool sounding. <laughs> mm. Well, you know, uh, on the contrary, Leon seems to like the fact that Edna has a playmate and a babysitter. And, <laughs> I know. Uh, Robert takes Edna off his hands, so to speak. And later in Chapter 5, we're told that uh, Robert picks a different girl every summer to fawn over. Some of the girls are single, uh, but mostly he picks married women that are unattainable. Um, and these women apparently enjoy the attention, and Robert isn't taken seriously as a threat. It's part of the beach culture, uh, and it's not a threat in this Creole culture. Agreed. Except, as we're going to find out, Edna isn't a Creole woman, and things aren't the same with her, as Adele reminds Robert in Chapter 8 as she tries to talk him into leaving Edna alone. She point blank tells him Edna isn't one of us. And she very much is not. Edna, the reader knows, was raised in a very frigid home. It's nothing like the physicality, the sensuality, the openness of these Creole people. I've got more to say about that. But before we get too far into the away from the crying scene, I want to draw attention to another detail. And this is where Chopin connects Edna's loneliness and tears to the sea. As Edna sat there alone and crying in the night, Chopin points out, and I want to quote her here, No sound abroad except the hooting of an owl in the top of a water oak and the everlasting voice of the sea. There are two ideas here worth noticing. First, Chopin is going to do a lot with sounds. Music, we're going to find out, is very important, and we're going to talk about that extensively next episode. But Grand Isle, in general, is a very noisy place. We've had noisy birds, and there's little girls, and they're playing the piano. But here's a second idea. The emphasis and presence of the sea. The sea may be the most important symbol of the entire book. The ocean is also an archetype. And you know I love archetypes. I know you do. This has got a lot here for you. (laughs) Right. Well, just in case you haven't heard us talk about archetypes before and you're unfamiliar familiar with what we mean by them in this literary context, uh, archetypes are psychological. The psychologist Carl Jung famously theorized that they are symbols wired into our brains. You know, that's one way to look at them. Uh, He called them a universal collective consciousness. Uh, And they are universal. And that means cultures all over the world throughout time, 
that have had no contact with each other use the same symbols to mean the same things. And uh, although they've had no way to coordinate this, oh, it's an interesting and, and true phenomenon, whether you agree with Jung's understanding of the unconsciousness or, or not. I mean, not all traditional symbols are archetypes, but a lot of them are. Uh, the ocean is an archetype, and that represents death and rebirth and timelessness and eternity and, the you know, the mother of all life. Um, it, and it shows up in cultures in all times, all over the world. Uh, you know, this is not a symbol that Chopin just made up. I mean, do we know how she's using it here, Christy? What are your ideas on that? Well, we're going to have to see. I mean, she's going to develop it along the way. That's the thing about symbols. They kind of take a life of their own in the story, but they also can form different ideas in the individual readers. Uh, we just want to take note and see what we notice. You know, they're at the seaside. Rob, Robert and Edna, they spend a lot of time at the sea all day long. Edna listens to the sea. It's a mournful lu- lullaby. It's just something to pay attention to, and we want to notice how it you know, develops through the story. In Chapter 4, we meet our first Creole woman, Mrs. Adele Ratignol, and my goodness, she's basically described <laughs> as a goddess. <laughs> You know, Chopin says there are no words to describe her. She's that gorgeous. I mean, she's the bygone heroine of romance. Oh, yes. I'm just intimidated reading about her. I also want to point out before we get too far away from our discussion of archetypes that Chopin is going to do a lot of things in threes, which is another archetypal number. There are three women, Adele, Edna, and this other one that we're going to meet in Chapter 9, Mademoiselle Ries. Edna was raised in a household of three girls. She had three crushes before marrying Leonce. She has three male lovers. There's a spoiler that's coming down the pipe. She has three homes to consider living in later on. It's all carefully constructed. It's very thematic. And we're going to look at all of that. But we're going to start with the women. First, the amazing Adele. She reminds me, honestly, of some of the Louisiana beauties that intimidated the heck out of me when I showed up in the ninth grade at West Monroe Junior High, home of the Colonels. (laughs) I mean, Adele is perfect, gracious, well-mannered. She has Southern charm writ large. Let me quote, There was nothing subtle or hidden about her charms. Her beauty was all there, flaming in apparent. The sun-golden hair that calm, not confining pen could, could restrain. The blue eyes that were nothing but sapphires. Two lips that pouted that were so red one could only think of cherries or some other delicious or crimson fruit and looking at them. Does it get any more perfect <laughs> than that? <laughs> I don't think so. You know, uh, before she even talks about her physical beauty, we find out that she's also the ideal mother woman. <laughs> And Chopin describes what that is. You know, uh, a mother woman is one who is, quote, fluttering about with extended protecting wings when any harm, real or imaginary, threaten their precious brood. <laughs> so, you know, a, a woman who, and again, I quote, idealized their children and worshiped their husbands and esteemed it a holy privilege to efface themselves as individuals and grow wings as ministering angels. Uh, you know, Christy, of course, we're supposed to to notice the wing thing, right? Yes. Uh, but I can't help but detect a little bit of sarcasm <laughs> on the part of our narrator. Is she mocking the mother woman? That that whole description of Adele and the mother women really sounds over the top. Uh, you mean the cherries and the crimson-looking fruit? Yes. <laughs> I know. Uh, that's a great point. And, and, and I think it's a pretty good question. It truly hits on one of the many brilliant strokes of this novel. We talked about this when we were discussing Jane Austen, and because Chopin uses the same technique that Austen used. It's called the free indirect discourse. It's a narrative style. And this is important uh, when you think about understanding the novel as a whole. What is Chopin doing? And she's very clever. And you noticed it right there. What Chopin does is she manipulates our perspective of events by mixing the perspective of a seemingly neutral narrator, but then she'll merge that perspective with the different perspectives of the characters, mostly Edna's, but not always. 
when we have this objective narrator, we're going to see it. It's sarcastic. It's got strong opinions. Like when we saw that Mr. Pontier looked at Edna on page two as a valuable piece of property. Well, that's editorializing. Uh, That's the narrator's perspective. But then sometimes we have this ability to merge into the point of view of one of the characters and understand the world that they see. Like when Edna describes not really being in love with Leonce when they got married or fighting with her younger sister or crying alone. Sometimes we even see things from the point of view of another character. And sometimes that's when the irony is the sharpest. Uh, we saw this before, and Leonce comes out from the club at 11 p.m., and Edna's asleep, and he comes in. Listen to how Chopin cleverly phrases this. He thought it very discouraging that his wife, who was the sole object of his existence, evinced so little interest in the things which concerned him and valued so little his conversation. I mean, that's just kind of ironic and kind of funny the way she does that. It seems unreasonable to him. He cannot understand how the object, how she, as the object of his existence, you know, relates to him that way. The way that Chopin writes it makes us understand that Robert truly believes Edna is the center of his universe, but we don't. I mean, we don't buy that at all. Here again, you know, we think everyone thinks Adele is the ideal women, woman, but the way she described all that, we don't buy that either. It doesn't seem like to be a holy privilege to efface yourself as an individual and grow wings as a ministering angel. It sounds terrible to me. I mean, I know I'm not a Victorian woman, but I just don't think it does. Never mind the fact that right after that glowing recommendation about Adele's perfection in every possible way, we're, we're let in on the fact that she also likes to fake being sick all the time, her condition. Why do that? I mean, that's manipulative. That's not a perfect angel. And that is so Victorian. <laughs> well, right. it's so clever. and She just kind of leads your thinking. Well, you know, being around Adele, uh, being around all the sensuous women, and you haven't mentioned the dirty book these ladies <laughs> oh, passed yes. around. That embarrasses Edna. Uh, but all of this changes Edna. I mean, she's not used to this carefree openness of the uh, Creole culture towards sensuality. And she doesn't understand it. Uh, And to add on to that, being around the ocean, being around this adoring younger man, Robert, being around the physicality of the females towards each other, it really affects her. I mean, it's the sensuality that awakens something in her, if you will. And uh, she had felt it slightly before, but shut it down and almost prided herself in shutting it down by marrying Leonce. And in some ways, here it is, it's coming on slowly but it's taking her by surprise. By chapter six, Edna is starting to dream, to feel emotional, something beyond just whatever is going on between her and Mr. Pontier. In short, and let me quote, Mrs. Pontier was beginning to realize her position in the universe as a human being and to recognize her relationships as an individual to the world within and about her. This may seem like a ponderous weight of wisdom to descend upon the soul of a young woman of 28. Perhaps more wisdom than the Holy Ghost is usually pleased to vouchsafe to any woman. Again, a bit ironic there. But the beginning of things, of a world especially, is necessarily vague, tangled, chaotic, and exceedingly disturbing. How few of us ever emerge from such beginnings. How many souls perish in its tumult. The voice of the sea is seductive, never ceasing, whispering, clamoring, murmuring, inviting the soul to wander for a spell in abyss of solitude, to lose itself in mazes of inward contemplation. The voice of the sea speaks to the soul. The touch of the sea is sensuous, enfolding the body in its soft, close embrace. (laughs) End of quote. I'm going to say that's definitely an outside narrator. (laughs) Yes. And it also feels a little bit like foreshadowing. Well, listen to the language. It's metaphorical. The ocean is alive. It's personified. You know, there there are two things that really stand out to me psychologically. The first is the admission that chaos is the beginning of things, uh, which, of course, is true. And organizing um, chaos is what starting anything is about. 
but that is problematic because chaos requires a lot of effort and responsibility to untangle it. I mean, is Edna ready to begin something like that? Uh, is that what she wants? Because we aren't given any hints that Edna looks towards anything in the future. I mean, the text goes to a lot of trouble to suggest that she's whimsical or uh, thoughtless or impulsive and, you know, uh, almost childish even. Uh, what comes after an awakening, awakening is naturally more responsibility. I mean, the exercise of agency, as Bandura would describe it, uh, we haven't seen much of a responsible side in Edna yet. I mean, uh, the second question is how dangerous um, the ocean is expressed to be, which, of course, you know, something everyone knows who's ever gotten in the ocean. Uh, the ocean is certainly seductive. I mean, it's beautiful, but incredibly dangerous. And, you know, thus the second question is Chopin suggesting that Edna is walking into something that is deceptively beautiful, something that looks enticing, but it's actually terrible. You know, something that promises to be an awakening, but actually something that would silence her forever. I mean, I'm just asking for a friend, as they say. <laughs> as a man, I wouldn't want to presume to unsettle any woman's spiritual awakening. Um, no, I would say you would not. <laughs> that would be waiting in dangerous waters, oh. using her words again. But um, And of course, you're obviously right about all that. Edna doesn't look forward at all, but she does look backwards. And in Chapter 7, as she and Adele stroll on the beach, Chopin takes us back into Edna's past. Edna reflects on those three men that she had crushes on, how it made her feel to be infatuated uh, this is the chapter where Edna again reflects on not loving Leon's but enjoying his flattery. She also awakens in chapter 7 to the idea, and this is unusual for a Victorian woman to talk about, but uh, Edna has mixed feelings about her own children. She doesn't think she loves her kids the way Adele loves her kids. And I want to quote her here. She was fond of her children in an uneven, impulsive way. She would sometimes gather them passionately to her heart. She would sometimes forget them. Their absence was a sort of a relief, though she did not admit this even to herself. It seemed to free her of a responsibility which had blindly assumed and for which fate had not fitted her. What do you think about that, Gary? <laughs> well, it's hard not to diagnose Edna, even though you know it's not prudent to diagnose fictional characters anyway. <laughs> Obviously, uh, Kate Chopin is an incredibly observant student of behavior. As I've always said, these great writers were amateur psychologists before the field was even invented. I mean, uh, she's seen this person in real life. And her interest in um, Edna is, is really kind of microscopic in some of the details. And uh, what we now know from um, you know neuroscientists as well as psychologists who study attachment theory is that some women, because they weren't nurtured as babies or children, do have trouble attaching to their own children. And obviously, that was not Kate Chopin's experience in her real life, but she clearly saw it somewhere. Um, you know, she goes to great lengths to talk about how isolated Edna was as a child and how her mother was dead and her older sister was really distant. And, you know, when we meet Edna's father later on in the book, uh, the reader can see for themselves that he's just a mean person. I mean, it seems clear that that Edna either feels guilty or at least feels like she at least should feel guilty that she doesn't seem to feel the way Adele feels towards either her husband or her children. I mean, um, there's a very telling passage at the end of chapter 16 where she tells Adele that she would never sacrifice herself for her children or, you know, for anyone. Um, that had actually started an argument with Adele, and, and Edna would say this, I would give up the unessential. I would give up my money. I would give up my life for my children, but I wouldn't give myself. I can't make it more clear. It's only something which I'm beginning to comprehend, which is revealing itself to me. So I would also add uh, that might be a dangerous thing to say in a Victorian world. <laughs> you know, a Victorian woman would never admit to having such a feeling. That would not be well received. Yeah. You know, I've read that passage, too. In fact, I've heard it quoted many, many times. And it's been quoted as a passage for female empowerment, saying that a woman is not going to give up the essence of her individuality. And that's what it means to be awakened, that you're not going to be subsumed to anyone, a child or a man or anything else. Well, you know, maybe that is what it means, but 
it maybe it isn't what it means. I mean, it may mean that she just can't. She just literally can't. I mean, lots of uh, men and women both give up their lives for their families and their friends and even their country. And giving up their lives doesn't mean giving up their identities. It means they love greatly. And I'm wondering if Chopin is suggesting um, Edna's realizing she's incapable of loving anyone outside herself, at least not loving greatly. I mean, uh, it's not entirely clear to me which direction she intends uh, to direct this character. May not be, you know, clear to Edna either. (laughs) Um, But Adele is the first model of a woman for Edna. The second model is Madame Reese. Adele and Madame Reese are foils. Now, when I say that, they're complete opposites, and we're supposed to see them as op- opposites. Chapter 9 introduces Madame Reese at an evening party there at the Grand Isle. I should mention that uh, the treatment of the time in this novel is completely non traditional. There are large gaps at random times between events, so you just, you know, keep up. Anyway, a few weeks have passed between Chapter 8 and Chapter 9. In Chapter 8, that's where Nadelle is telling Robert to stop flirting with Edna because, she, you know, she's not one of us and she might take him seriously. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know, of course, Robert is going to ignore Adele's warning and spend all of his time with Edna. I mean, uh, he seems to have decided he's actually good with that. <laughs> well, he's good with it until, you know, he isn't. But before we get to that, I want to point out uh, that in Chapter 9, we're going to meet another version of a feminine ideal in this person of Madame Reese. The summer residents of the Grand Isle are having this big party at the big house, and everyone's dancing. At first, Adele is on the piano. She plays because she's too pregnant to dance, and everyone's just having a great time. It's Adele, as pointed out, plays the piano not because she just loves the piano, but because music makes her kids and her husband happy. So she plays. Music brightens their home. Music is a means to an end, but music is not the end itself. She's passionate about her family. That's her goal. So she is the mother woman after all, huh? <laughs> yes, but not Mademoiselle Reese. Mademoiselle Reese is the artist woman. That's another version of uh, femininity. Mademoiselle Reese's relationship with music is deep. Music is the end for her. It's her passion. She feels about music maybe the way Adele feels about her family. Her music doesn't make people happy. It moves them. It takes them to an entirely other place. But before we talk about how Mademoiselle Reese's music affects everyone, including Edna, I want to point out how Chopin describes Madame Reese because it's a complete contrast to how she describes <laughs> Adele. If you remember, how can you forget? Adele is the most beautiful creature that's ever, you know, aligned, alighted itself on planet Earth. Let's look at Madame Reese. She was a disagreeable little woman, no longer young, who had quarreled with almost everyone owing to a temper which was self-assertive and a disposition to trample upon the rights of others. She was a homely woman, with a weazened face and body and eyes that glowed. She had absolutely no taste in dress and wore a batch of rusty black lace with a bunch of artificial violets pinned to the side of her hair. Uh, Well, that's not exactly flattering. No, I'd like to say it is not. She's not a mother woman either. She's single. She's strong in a different way. And I don't want to say that Adele isn't strong because I do think that she is. It's just a different feminine ideal. When Madame Reese plays the piano, it literally sends tremors down Edna's spinal cord. Let me read the text here. The very passions themselves were aroused within her soul, swaying it, lashing it as the waves daily beat upon her splendid body. She trembled. She was choking and cheered blinded her well look at that edna is crying again (laughs) but this time it's pretty different from last time true and this is the night that edna finally learns to swim robert talks that entire party to go out into the white moonlight for a late night swim a moon is another archetype but we're not even going to go there the sea's quiet and edna for the first time boldly and with overconfidence goes into the water all by herself Now, let me point out that she's been trying to swim all summer. She's never gone out alone, and she's failed every time. But tonight, it's different. 
a feeling of exultation overtakes her. She grows, and I quote, daring and reckless, overestimating her strength. She wanted to swim far out where no woman had swum before. I mean, she's intoxicated by her power to swim alone. This is the text again. She seemed to be reaching out for the unlimited to which to lose herself. She tells Robert how swimming made her feel as he walks her back to her cottage. She says this, A thousand emotions have swept through me tonight. I don't comprehend half of them. She goes on to say it is like a night in a dream. Notice how much talk of dreams we have here. She stays on the porch that night instead of going into bed like she normally would. Uh, Mr. Pontier, I have no idea where he's been. He was at the beach <laughs> at one point, but it's past one o'clock and he's just now, you know, stumbling back. And she's on that porch wide awake. He tells her to come in with him. And the text says that normally she would have, and I quote, yielded to his desire, however you want to understand that. But this night, for the first time in her life, she tells him no. She feels strong, maybe even masculine. He's kind of shocked and decides to stay on the porch with her, smoking cigars and drinking wine the whole night. The text says this, Edna began to feel like one who awakens gradually out of a dream, a delicious, grotesque, impossible dream, to feel again the realities pressing into her soul. Hmm, that sounds like she has had her awakening. <laughs> it does. But then what does this awakening impel her to do? Well, the very first paragraph of chapter 12, which is the next chapter, says this. She was blindly following whatever impulse moved her, as if she had placed herself in alien hands for direction and freed her soul of responsibility. That, as a student, as and I've only heard of Dr. Bandura today, by the way, but <laughs> that sounds like, uh, does not, well, let me say this, it does not sound like the empowerment that Dr. Bandura described as human agency. It sounds like the opposite of empowerment. It sounds like impulsivity. It sounds like irresponsibility. Those are not the kind of things that lead to success. <laughs> <laughs> no. And if Edna is the parrot from the first chapter of the book, it seems to me she might be parroting the behavior of her husband as her first act of independence. I mean, she tries to outweigh him at night, and then the next morning she gets early and she leaves him just as he has done to her every single day. And, you know, she calls Robert and is gone, and she stays gone until 9 p.m. at night, leaving Adele to put her kids down. And uh, it just seems to me that Edna and Leonce have more in common than we might have thought, really, from the first couple of chapters of the book. Yes, I mean, the, the text literally will say again, she was blindly following whatever impulse moved her as if she had placed herself in alien hands and freed her soul of responsibility. Robert, you know, over the course of the day, even mentions to her that he often noticed she lacked forethought. <laughs> <laughs> There's that word again, responsibility, and the great paradox that Edna does not understand responsibility and freedom go hand in hand. I mean, if you don't have responsibility, you can't have freedom. And, uh, Edna tries to, to have one at the expense of the other. Well, she also starts things and doesn't follow through with them. Even on this little adventure outing, she starts the mass, but she walks out. She literally goes into the house of a woman she doesn't know, imposes herself by laying on this woman's bed and sleeps the entire day. She's able to exercise freedom, but it's only because other people are willing to take responsibility for her. The first part of this book ends with chapter 16. Robert has announced that he is leaving Grand Isle and going to Mexico. Okay. <laughs> We're left to infer that uh, after a day with Edna and the realization he may have real feelings for her, he doesn't want the entanglement taking responsibility for that would bring. I mean, Edna, on the other hand, doesn't seem to get it. I mean, she's distraught. She doesn't know how she will spend the rest of her summer without Robert. Her husband literally asks her, how do you get on without him, Edna? Which I think is a question I would never ask you about another man. But again, I'm not a Victorian <laughs> Creole either. No, that's true. But these two don't think a thing about it. Let me read this part. 
It did not strike her as in the least grotesque that she should be making Robert the object of conversation and leading her husband to speak of him. The sentiment which she entertained for Robert in no way resembled that which she felt for her husband or had ever felt or ever expected to feel. She had all her life been accustomed to harbor thoughts and emotions which never voiced them. They had never taken the form of struggles. They belonged to her and were her own, and she entertained the conviction that she had a right to them, and they concerned no one but herself. There's that outside narrator again, commenting somewhat ironically on the state of affairs. <laughs> well, um, our solitary soul has not found wings, uh, but she's found her sea legs. <laughs> yes, and, she has. And she's exercising them, and uh, I don't find her behavior really necessarily admirable at this point, but... You know, as we said in the beginning of the podcast, beginnings are chaotic, and that's the normal state of affairs. And, you know, the question will be, um, is Edna capable of creating uh, her own story? Uh, she has decided she hasn't been the protagonist of her own life. She's been a parrot or an object of Leonce's, and she's awakened to that in some way. So, you know, she has begun, and she has uh, two models of womanhood in front of her, you know, the mother woman of Adele. <laughs> And the artist woman of Madame Reese. And, you know, next episode, we will see the middle part of the story. What will Edna do when she goes back home? And what will she do when she's away from the sea? And the dreamy, really unreality of vacation life. Uh, will she take on new responsibilities with her awakening? And what will Leonce do? I guess we'll find out. <laughs> you know, indeed, things aren't always the same when we get back home after vacation. Isn't that sad? <laughs> the reality sets in. Well, thank you for being with us today and uh, walking with us through this second episode on a very fascinating book about uh, human character. We always like to encourage you to, to contact us, email us, check out our social uh, media pages. Uh, we also uh, encourage you to go to howtolovelypodcast.com. There you can click on a link to get yourself a t-shirt, a <laughs> mug, a poster, all kind of cool things related to the podcast. So thanks again for listening. Peace out. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 